Hello, this is Ian Wolfe, producer of Diffusion Science Radio. This show depends on your support. Please make a donation directly with the PayPal button at www.diffusionradio.com or support Diffusion by downloading a free audiobook from audibletrial.com science or go to diffusionradio.com support and click on an Amazon link or buy my nano drones. The International Science Radio Show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. <laughs> the good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, the fate of the universe. But first up, here's the news. Gravitational waves. Waves of space-time caused by the motion of massive objects have been observed by the Laser Interferometry Gravitational Observatory, LIGO. Two large laser detectors independently observed the same pattern from stretching and shrinking of the length of a beam of light. The signal matched a pattern predicted by general relativity when two black holes spiral into one another. General relativity says that mass bends space-time as if it were a fabric. The bigger the mass, the bigger the dent. Einstein predicted that large masses moving through space would create waves in the fabric of space-time, like ripples from a stone thrown into a pond. Sort of in the same way that electrical charges moving radiate light waves. So the event to look for is two very massive black holes orbiting each other in constant movement. As the black holes move, they should radiate gravitational waves that carry energy away at the speed of light. As the black holes lose energy, they would move closer together and rotate faster around each other, which causes more gravitational waves to leach energy away, so they get closer and faster, spiralling towards each other until they crash together. The pattern of gravitational ripples will have waves going up higher and higher in frequency, louder and louder, going up faster, until a final chirp before they crash together. Sounding something like this. These waves would be visible as tiny changes in length in very long and very precise laser interferometers. Each interferometer consists of a laser beam that's reflected along two 4km long paths and back to a detector where they interfere. Normally the paths are tuned so that the waves of light in the laser exactly cancel out their ups with their downs and you get darkness at the detector. If the length of the path of light changes by even one ten thousandth of the width of an atomic nucleus, then the light waves interfere constructively and you get a visible pattern. From the pattern, you can tell how and when the length changed, which tells you the frequency of the waves of space-time and their amplitude or height. The two instruments detected the same signal seven milliseconds apart, exactly the amount of time for something to travel at the speed of light between the detectors in Washington State and Louisiana. Between 2002 and 2010, LIGO didn't detect anything. It was shut down for a sensitivity upgrade in 2010. 
In September 2015, it was switched on again. And on September 14, 2015, they detected a signal. The signal was a chirp matching the pattern from two black holes, 36 and 29 times the mass of our sun, 1.3 billion light years away, spiralling together faster and faster until they merged into a bigger black hole, 62 times the mass of the sun. The numbers don't add up because three solar masses of energy were lost to radiation from gravitational waves rippling through space-time, quickly releasing as much energy as the sun would emit in 12 trillion years. Australia's CSIRO scientists contributed to the very precise polishing and the optical coatings of the LIGO mirrors. Unfortunately, CSIRO director and water dowsing promoter Dr Larry Marshall sacked the polishing and coating technology scientists and closed down their Australian Centre for Precision Optics. So Australia won't be contributing the same way to future projects. If two neutron stars do the same death spiral as the black holes, then they'd also release gamma rays that we could detect with gamma-ray telescopes. In 2015, the European Space Agency launched their Laser Interferometry Space Antenna, LISA Pathfinder, to test new technology. If it works as expected, the full LISA will be launched with three detectors separated by millions of kilometres instead of thousands at enormously higher precision than LIGO. The future for gravitational waves is massive. Slime Mold The Movie Despite having no nervous system, or any organs at all, slime moulds appear to be intelligently interacting with their environment. They can make decisions, choose directions, solve mazes, and even form simple logic circuits. By understanding how slime moulds operate, we can learn much about the nature of intelligence, emerging complexity, and network optimization. Sadly, general knowledge of slime moulds is lacking. To remedy this, Sydney Biofoundry have organised a screening of The Creeping Garden, which explores the science and art of slime moulds and those that love them. You can watch the trailer at creepinggarden.com. The screening will be at the Red Rattler Theatre, just a short walk from Sydenham train station in Sydney. Tickets are $10 plus an online booking fee. Each ticket also gets you a free slime mould culture kit. Grow your own slimy friend. You can buy tickets at the door, but buying online guarantees you a slime mould to take home. All profits from the event are donated back to the Biofoundry and the Red Rattler Theatre. Check out the Citizen Science Biofoundry at foundry.bio. Waste not, want not? A state government nuclear inquiry in South Australia has announced that they want the waste without the power. The Nuclear Fuel Cycle Royal Commission's tentative findings are that uranium mining and nuclear power are too expensive to make a profit, and the people don't want them. So, let's make billions by taking in the most long-lasting, most poisonous waste instead. That's right, the Royal Commission has decided that nuclear waste is the most desirable part of nuclear energy. The Commission acknowledged that radioactive waste imported from foreign power stations would need to be isolated from the environment for hundreds of thousands of years. They propose using the glass and synthetic rock storage technologies that have already been shown to leach waste into the surrounding environment, poisoning it. It's a risk they're prepared to take. The closing time for public responses to the tentative findings is 5pm, 18th of March, 2016. I'll put a link on the episode page. Like all previous Australian governments, both state and federal, that have considered storing foreign, 
high-level radioactive waste, they want to put the waste depository on Aboriginal land. I'm sure they'll give it back in just a few hundred thousand years. You're listening to Ian Wolfe on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. Cosmology asks the biggest questions about the biggest subject. John Barrow is Professor of Mathematical Sciences at the Department of Applied Maths and Theoretical Physics at the University of Cambridge in England. I began by asking him, what are the biggest discoveries made in cosmology in recent times? Well, observationally, there are two great discoveries. I mean, about 16 years ago or so, we discovered the acceleration in the expansion of the universe when the universe was about three quarters of its present expanded size, it seemed that the expansion changed gear and started to accelerate. And we live today in a period where the expansion of the universe is accelerating. Before that change of gear, the expansion was rather slower and it decelerated as time went on. So this was a great observational discovery. One of the discoverers, Brian Schmidt, Australian, and Nobel Prize was given for this discovery. What it taught us about the universe was something rather unexpected. Why should it start accelerating at this particular time in the relatively recent past? So we could understand what might cause the universe to accelerate, but it was very mysterious why this should happen in the relatively recent past, just a few billion years ago, rather than right near the beginning of the universe, when all sorts of complicated things might occur. So to get the universe to accelerate, you need a particular type of material to be around in the universe in a predominant form, a particular type of energy. And we call this dark energy, basically because we don't know what it is, and it's not luminous. But we see its gravitational effect, and it's that that is accelerating the expansion of the universe. And the fact that it's accelerating means that this dark energy has a repulsive gravitational effect. So completely the opposite to all the other more local forms of energy and mass that we're familiar with and which would have dominated the structure of the universe in its earlier stages. So how could this be? How can you have stuff that's gravitationally repulsive? Well, in Einstein's theory, the one equation of physics that everybody knows is that E equals mc squared. Okay, so every form of energy is equivalent to a mass and it gravitates. But in Einstein's theory, there are all sorts of forms of energy with different properties and they all have to gravitate. And pressure is a form of energy which has to gravitate. And negative pressure, or tension as we call it, has to as well. And the combination of mass, density and pressure that contributes to gravity in the universe is the density plus three times the pressure in units of the speed of light squared. So our c squared from E is mc squared. And you can have forms of matter in elementary particle physics which have negative pressure. And so this combination of the density plus three times the pressure can be negative. And that type of material anti-gravitates and creates accelerated expansion. So the discovery of the acceleration of the universe is, in some sense, a discovery of that type of unusual energy field. 
which we're not surprised that existed, but we're surprised that it completely dominates the universe today. 70% of the universe's energy is in this form. So that was one great discovery. The other great discovery, or really a confirmation of a prediction, so that acceleration was not predicted, that really was a surprise, is that very early in the history of the universe, in the first moments of its expansion, we had expected this type of anti-gravitating field to dominate what went on for a very brief period of time. And that phenomenon is known as inflation. So this acceleration, this surge in the expansion, has always been known as inflation. Because the theory of it was invented in 1980 and 81, when inflation was a big issue economically around the world, and so this term was used to capture attention. So this different type of acceleration, this brief instant, has all sorts of remarkable consequences. It predicts that the expansion today ought to have a particular pattern, and it predicts that the expansion should be extremely spherical, so the same expansion rate in every direction, like an expanding sphere rather than a sort of wobbly ellipsoid or some other subject. But most importantly, it predicts that little fluctuations in density and expansion rate should arise by quantum statistical processes in those first instants. And those little fluctuations, at the level of one part in a hundred thousand only, are the seeds of what we see today as galaxies and clusters. So all the things that we see in our deep astronomical photographs, everything in the universe that deviates from just perfect, boring smoothness of density, arises from those little quantum fluctuations that were driven by that surge of acceleration. And cosmologists could make very, very detailed predictions as to what you should see if that was the case. What should be the patterns of these fluctuations on the sky in the radiation left over from the hot beginning to the universe? And a succession of satellite missions have attempted to map these fluctuations in greater detail. There have been three of them about ten years apart, and each one does about five times better than the previous one. Well, the last one, called the Planck mission, was a European mission. The previous one, WMAP, as it was called, was American, and the first one, COBE, was American, NASA. Well, Planck has produced the most exquisitely detailed maps of these fluctuations in temperature, and they match the predictions extraordinarily well. So to my mind, there's no doubt at all that this surge of inflation occurred near the beginning of the universe. And what we set about doing now is to use the detailed sky maps of the radiation to try to figure out all the other aspects of the structure of the universe that contribute to the map. So if you change this amount of the dark energy, in fact, you would make the map very different. It wouldn't agree with what we see. So beautifully, the predictions of this map of the sky's radiation would have allowed us to discover the acceleration of the universe today if it hadn't been observed by those people 16 years ago. So these great observational discoveries are, on the one hand, finding something brand new, but on the other, providing extraordinarily detailed confirmation of something that we predicted quite a long time ago. So the observers are doing very well. They are taking advantage of fantastic new technologies to see smaller effects than ever before, using satellites to get above the atmosphere to make clearer observations of the universe far away. And 
the theorists are sort of waiting for them, you know, to take the next step and confirm something else. We're going to hear a lot about gravitational waves in the next year or two, and there will be cosmological gravitational waves to think about, wonder if, you know, they're going to give us new information about the early history of the universe. So with the early history of the universe, so you're saying that the acceleration of the expansion that we see now is not how it always was. There was an early period of very fast inflation. Yes. And then there was a gap where it was... So what are those three periods of the history of the cosmology? So if you just have a simple universe that you start expanding from some beginning, then the only force acting upon everything is the gravitational pull of everything on each other. So the only thing that can happen is that it decelerates. But if this funny anti-gravitating stuff is around, then the situation can be reversed. So the pattern, we think, uh, is what happens. The expansion begins. There's a very brief period of decelerating expansion. Then this surge of acceleration near the beginning. It comes to an end because the particles that deliver that anti-gravitation, they decay into ordinary things that don't do it. Then we have a long period, as you said, of of just simple decelerating expansion, right from the first, you know, 10 to the minus 30 of a second, up to when the universe is, you know, about sort of six to eight billion years old. And then it starts to accelerate again. So the pattern is deceleration, inflation, acceleration, long period of deceleration, and then a last period of acceleration which is the period we're in today. Given that we're not sure what caused the current acceleration of expansion, is it possible we could go into another deceleration that it could just end? Yeah, it could be. You know, it could be that we know nobody's ever found a way of linking together these two periods of acceleration, which is very frustrating. You know, it could be something that happens periodically. You know, it's like this. It could be something that happens at random because of something in particle physics. Or it could be a bit more complicated, that you accelerate for a while and then you go back to decelerate again. But we do know that the acceleration today, it's not like the acceleration right near the beginning. You know, it's just a completely different type of environment. You know, elementary particles are not in equilibrium at some high temperature. Everything is rather low energy and uninteresting. That's why it's so surprising that this has happened when the universe has cooled off to what we all thought was a rather uninteresting low-density environment where the sort of exciting things that happen are making planets, making stars, not some global elementary particle thing. The favourite explanation for this late stage of acceleration, this dark energy, is that it's what physicists would call the vacuum energy of the universe, the sort of lowest energy state that the universe can be in. When physicists talk about the vacuum uh, or the vacuum state, they don't mean what ordinary people mean by the vacuum, which means nothing at all. Quantum mechanics doesn't allow you to have a volume that has nothing at all in it. All they mean is the situation is in the lowest state that it's allowed to be in. That's what you mean by the vacuum state. So the physics concept of the vacuum is it's what is left when everything that can be removed has been removed. And anything else you do to your box, all it can do is increase the energy. So 
everyone had expected that the vacuum energy state, in this sense, for the whole universe would be zero, and that there would be some great principle that would, when you found it, would show you why that was the case. So it was a bit of a shock to discover that he's not zero. In fact, you know, in the appropriate units, rather than being zero, it's one divided by 10 followed by 120 zeros. So it's about as close to zero as you could ever imagine numerically. But yet, when its effect is added up cumulatively over the whole universe, it completely dominates the universe. In fact, back in the mid-1980s, Frank Tipper and I produced an argument that was rather unusual at the time. So no one at that time believed the universe was accelerating or that this unusual dark energy stress existed. And we produced an argument that said, well, if this stress exists... It has to be smaller than a particular number, 10 to the minus 120. Otherwise, the universe would have started accelerating so early in its history that no stars and galaxies could have formed. So once it starts accelerating, stars and galaxies can't form. That The material is being whipped apart so quickly that it can't condense and coagulate into galaxies. And so that was bad news. We, we wouldn't have any life in the universe. We wouldn't be here and this is sometimes called the anthropic argument for the cosmological constant or for the dark energy. Now, what's remarkable is that the discovered level of it is only about ten times bigger than that fundamental limit. So our 1 over 10 followed by 121 zeros, fantastically small number. But if it had been ten times bigger, we wouldn't be here. So this is what's so weird about this that it's actually a very sensitive issue if it exists or not. So I think particle physicists seeing our limit, you know, that it has to be less than 1 over 10 followed by 120 zero, said, it's obviously zero. <laughs> we'll ignore it. Later we'll find out why. So he then discovered, astronomers told them, actually it's not zero. It's 1 over 10 followed by 121 zeros. So this is the biggest unsolved problem, I think, really, both in astronomy and in fundamental physics. Why does this acceleration have the exact value it does? Why, therefore, has it taken over the expansion at a particular time? And the other remarkable thing about it is that it's completely changed our conception of the far, far future of the universe. That because the universe is accelerating, eventually, in some sense, light will not be able to reach us anymore. You know, it's its sources are being pulled apart, and it'll be as though our descendants are living inside a black hole. There will be a fixed limit defined by the acceleration beyond which they cannot see, and all the galaxies that they see expanding away from them will pass out through that horizon, and eventually the astronomers of the future will not see any other galaxies at all. They will have all passed that horizon point. And so you won't be able to gather any observational evidence about the expansion of the universe anymore. You won't be able to tell the universe is expanding. You won't be able to tell it's accelerating. The universe will still be dominated by all this dark energy, but you wouldn't be able to discover that. So the only way you would be able to discover that is to read old books and old articles about those people back in the 21st and 20th century who were able to see all the things that we can't see anymore. So there is a period of cosmic history where life is possible after the stars form, but before they all die. But there's also a period where it's possible to learn about the universe and do astronomy. Fortunately, we're in this period, but it won't continue forever. And 
to discover these remarkable things about the universe needs good fortune in a rather local sense of not living on a planet that's completely immersed with clouds, so you can't do any astronomy. But also we've learned we're linked to the whole structure of the universe, that there are features of it that will eventually stop people observing it far, far away. In that case, would the stars in the galaxy also be affected by the accelerating expansion of the universe? No. Well, you'd have to wait a very long time. So what will happen over huge periods of time? The stars in our galaxy are going around in a disk, and in some others they sort of fly around in orbits rather like a swarm of bees. Every so often one of them will get a little kick by going close to another one and be given a little extra speed and it can escape. And over trillions of years, stars will escape, and the ones that are left get a bit more tightly bound. But before that, you have to worry about the fate of the stars themselves. So in five and a half billion years, you know, our sun will not be like it is today. It will have swollen up massively and vaporised the inner solar system. And then it'll collapse to a tiny, dense object called a white dwarf, about the size of the Earth, but the mass of the sun. So a hundred times smaller than the sun. So we won't be living on the surface of that object with its density of a million times the density of water. And all the other stars in the galaxy will die in a similar way to form either a white dwarf or a neutron star or a black hole. So the long-term forecast is rather bleak. All the stars will die and our galaxy and other galaxies are like great cemeteries, great cosmic cemeteries of dead stars. And in these processes of dying, the stars tend to incorporate with the many planets that are orbiting the star, and they get consumed in the process as well. So the more massive a star is, the shorter its lifetime. This seems somewhat paradoxical. You know, you would think bigger the star, more fuel to burn, the longer it'll live. That's one factor, but the factor that outweighs that is that a big star with lots of mass has a much stronger gravitational force of compression at its centre, which drives the nuclear reactions. So it burns the fuel faster, and that's the effect that wins out. And the massive stars, the lifetime is proportional to one over the square of the mass of the star. So, so that all bets will be off in, in that respect in the far future. So if you know, our descendants want to survive, they need to not be reliant upon stars. They're going to have a hard job deriving energy from, from anywhere. And eventually, also if you live in a galaxy and you want to do astronomy, this wonderful background radiation from the beginning of the universe that told us about inflation and so forth, eventually at about 70 billion years in the future, it will not be able to penetrate our galaxy anymore. Its wavelength will have got so long um, that it can't penetrate through the interstellar medium of our galaxy. So that will have been switched off, in effect, as a probe of the universe. So things are quite propitious for us today about learning about the universe. Uh, they won't always be like that. That was Professor John Barrow from Cambridge University talking about the fate of the universe. You'll hear more from John Barrow on the multiverse in a future show. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Would you like to join us? We need more people contributing stories to Diffusion. Send your contributions, opinions, congratulations, helpful suggestions and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. And send me an email so I know you're listening and you'd like to hear more episodes. Like the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook and rate us on iTunes. Tell your friends. 
Follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolf. Checking production was Charles Willock. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia on the community radio network, including 2 Triple H in Hornsby, Karingai, 2MVR in Nambaka Valley, 2XX in Canberra, and 3MBR in the Mallee Border Districts of Victoria and South Australia. Diffusion is syndicated globally on the National Science Foundation's Science360 internet radio station and also on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to our podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com and check the website for links, photos and videos with this week's show. If you enjoyed the show, then you can explore more than 700 previous episodes archived on diffusionradio.com where the shows are labelled by keywords so you can focus in on the stories you want to hear. Subscribe to the Diffusion YouTube channel at youtube.com slash C slash Diffusion Radio. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio.